Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice, and I'm on a mission to help you simplify and apply insights from neuroscience and behavioral psychology to both your personal and professional life. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode with best-selling author Dr. Ginger Campbell. This episode is special for a number of reasons, but primarily because Ginger is largely responsible for inspiring me to study neuroscience. Nearly two decades ago, I became obsessed with the brain. I knew there had to be a better explanation as to why we do what we do as human beings. And in that pursuit of more knowledge, I stumbled on Ginger's award-winning podcast, Brain Science. Dr. Campbell spent over 20 years as an emergency physician in rural Alabama. In 2014, she went back to the University of Alabama in Birmingham, where she completed a fellowship in palliative medicine. As a physician and a researcher with an insatiable appetite for understanding the brain, she's written and updated an exciting book about the unconscious mind entitled, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. This book is timely, and I hope you lead this episode, taking a few more pauses before feeling certain in your decision-making. It can make all the difference for everyone, including leaders. Meet Dr. Ginger Campbell. Enjoy. Dr. Ginger Campbell, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thanks uh, so much for having me. I am looking forward to this conversation. And before we dive into your book, Are You Sure? The Origins, The Unconscious Origins of Certainty, let's do this fun feature called Inside Your Mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. So the first question is, you can only choose one. And some of these questions are going to be challenging, but I'm going to give you two options in all of these questions. You can only choose one, meditation or exercise. Exercise. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Audiobook or printed? Ah. Oh. <laughs> printed. Okay. IQ or EQ? EQ. Conscious or unconscious? <laughs> Conscious. Dog or cat? Dog. <laughs> Interviewing a guest or being interviewed as a guest? Being interviewed. Oh, lovely, lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks for I know couple of these are really difficult, especially conscious or unconscious, but I thought it would be a good segue into our conversation. And my first question for you is we live in an era where everyone seems certain. I call it the illusion of knowing. And you decide to put out a book questioning our knowing, asking a profound but simple question, are you sure? And so why does this question matter so much to you? Because people thinking that they, they're right, which is uh, tied to knowing, knowing you're right, uh, causes so much conflict, uh, both at the level of interpersonal relationships and the relationships between nations and every level you can think of. 
And so I feel like if we understood that, that we, we can't really be sure like we think we can, we would be more tolerant of both ourselves and other people. So nothing could go farther to promote actual peace among people than not being so sure. I mean, you spent 20 years in an emergency as an emergency physician, physician in rural Alabama. What did that teach you about the brain? And did it inspire you to want to go on this journey of researching the brain? It taught me that perception is reality. I mean, sometimes when I would talk to a patient and this still happens to me, I I don't feel that we're experiencing the same world. And yet their reality that they experience is impacting their health. So appreciating that our, everyone has based on what their brain's doing a different reality. And that was the biggest lesson. There's Did you ever experience the placebo effect in action as a physician? <laughs> that's a, well, I'm sure I have. I mean, that's kind of a tough one. I would actually say I would flip it and say, I think the placebo effect is so powerful that if a patient does not have confidence in what you've chosen as their treatment, it can fail, even though it's the right choice. I see. I know with myself, for example, when I'm presented, this is a secret. I haven't shared this with anyone. This is the first time I'm saying this. I can't believe I'm saying it on my podcast. When I'm presented, I don't know if this is a mental weakness or what, but when I'm presented at the pharmacy with the option of taking the generic or the brand, for some reason, I can't go with the generic. Like I, I really am caught up on the brand. I don't know what that's about. What's your, what's been your experience with that? Yeah. Um, well, have you ever read Dan Ariely's book? I mean, you were at MIT, you know, his work. Um, yes. Predictably irrational. Yes. He did yes. a bunch of experiments that showed that if they told someone that this more expensive, choose this expensive thing versus a less expensive drug, they would always want the expensive one. Uh, and you know, and this isn't a pretend situation. So there's just something about the way our brain calculates value that we assume, oh, the brand name costs more. Therefore it must be better. Yeah. And I'm sure this plays out across. I wonder, I wonder if elite athletes have this issue. Like could an elite athlete perform in a knockoff issue versus a high-performing Nike. I wonder, has anybody done those studies? Yeah. I mean, and it goes in every field. I mean, you know, these expensive, you know, 100-year-old um, violins, you know, even though objectively they're not really better, but, yes. you know, the violinists are sure. So, um, yeah, it it's a pretty universal behavior, I think. And yeah. so you really had, but it's a great example of how, um, you have your gut reaction. And then if you have time to examine your gut reaction, you can ask, well, is that really the best choice? You know, you're walking down a dark street and you have that spider sense. That's, that's time to run, right? That's not time to examine, but you're, <laughs> but you're standing in the gro- in the drugstore and hopefully safe. Um, and you've got time to think, you can go, oh, yeah, I know my reflexes to do that, but I also know 
that the science says that, you know, this drug is just as good as a generic. Yeah. I could spend that money on something else. And maybe that's, that's actually the thing is that in that moment, if I slow down, I could potentially hack that instinct, right? And really think to myself, my investment mind needs to override that emotional instinct to choose this more expensive brand. Thank you for that. I think you've just helped me, <laughs> Ginger. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, like I said at the beginning, you have had a, an influence because, you know, you've had your podcast for 16 years, going on 17 years now. And congrats by making the podcast Hall of Fame. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's really, really awesome. You know, in those early days of podcasts, before anybody knew what a podcast was, did you ever feel lonely making your podcast before you grew your audience? No, because at the very beginning, I was drawn to the the community that was the pioneers, the people nobody remembers anymore. Um, and, and I wanted to be, I, I mean, to me, those were the cool kids, right? I wanted to mm. be the part of, of the, the cool kids doing this new thing. Uh, and and so my focus was on being part of the group, the community that was making the podcast. So the uh, numbers of who was listening wasn't, and it really wasn't such a big deal back then because we weren't, most of us were not having advertising or anything. So the numbers, the, the numbers have been, you know, gotten to be too important, I think. Um, when I had my induction last year into the Hall of Fame, I said, because I felt like it's so important that podcasting is not about numbers or making money. It's about connecting with people and connecting. It's like connecting with you. You're one person. That's enough for me. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. And if you look at how much you've impacted my life. I mean, my mother had a neurological breakdown when I was 18 years old. and I became completely fascinated with the neurobiological structure of the brain and that's how I came across your podcast. And that's how I became grippingly interested because nothing made sense. None of the stuff I was coming across was making any sense. And, and I feel like on, in many, in, on many levels that, and it almost feels surreal to have this conversation with you because I feel like for probably about 12 years or more that I've been hanging out with you. <laughs> when you've been interviewing people and we've been friends and and as I hear your voice, it just, it's a bit jarring to have a conversation <laughs> with you because you've been in my head for so many years. Anyway. Okay. Let's get back into this conversation. So, you know, I was thinking, I was like, I wonder what is it about Ginger's journey? Because so much of your approach to your guest is, you know, almost contrarian, just asking the hard questions and, you know, being open to knowing that this research may evolve and may change and trying to get to down to the essential. So I wanted to know, is there, was there an important part of your life where you were unsure about something or have you had to question your own certainty? Absolutely. Um, coming to brain science was actually a part of a very long journey that, I mean, starting as a child when I was doing what I think most people do, which is searching for, you know, meaning and trying to figure out my place. I, I came of age during Vietnam. So one of the questions was, was a, a religious question of like, why would God allow war? 
and happened to get exposed to Jehovah's Witnesses, which are a little extreme. And I, I spent eight years in, in that um, group. And when I got out, I felt like someone had let my brain out of a cage. And oh, then wow. I began my real journey of trying to figure out, you know, meaning. I For a long time, I thought that it was I needed to find someone else that had the answers, right? And I explored um, Native American spirituality. I spent a lot of time studying Eastern philosophy, Buddhism in particular. And finally, around 2000, I reached this point. Well, it might have been a little bit later. But I reached this point where I was stuck because these these groups that want to base themselves on ancient ideas are kind of like, oh, these old guys knew all the answers. And I'm like, but where do we make room for new discoveries in science? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. was actually the point at which I started reading, ironically, for the first time in my life, Western philosophy. Because before I'd always got bored because they always make you start at Plato. And to me, Plato's like super boring. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but I made, I made myself go through, I read several excellent histories of philosophy and I went through the whole growth of philosophy, which to me is fascinating because things start out as philosophy until they can become science. And so physics was like that. At, at one point, what's now physics was philosophy. You know, the ancient Greeks were philosophizing about how they thought the universe worked. Um, Democritus, who usually gets credit for thinking of the idea of ad- of atoms, there was no way to test that back then. So it was all in the head, philosophy. Um, and I discovered that there's this branch of Western philosophy called philosophy of mind. And when I started exploring that, I discovered, hey, neuroscience is now doing all this new stuff. And the stuff we used to think we couldn't study, we can study. We can study con- consciousness. Um, a lot of the older philosophers of mind went into philosophy because when they were coming up, consciousness could not be studied by scientists. So they went into philosophy because yes. that's what they cared about. Now we've got young scientists like um, like Anil Seth who spent their whole career studying consciousness because it's a recognized field of neuroscience now. But it wasn't. 30 years ago. And, but that's what led me into neuroscience. It was a very long roundabout trek. And I finally, when I got to neuroscience, I was like, oh, okay. Um, that impacted a lot of my other beliefs too. And that was around the time that podcasting arrived. And at first I didn't, I didn't immediately go, oh, I need to make a show about neuroscience. Yes, I, yes, that's yes, not yes. what happened. <laughs> um, it wasn't quite that simple. In 2005, I heard my first podcast and I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. Of course, I did what people usually do. I recorded my voice and thought it was horrible. And <laughs> and, and so another year went by. And then in the summer of 2006, I was listening to a podcast called The Sci-Fi Zone. I don't think it's around anymore, but it was from Australia, I think. And it was about the intersection of philosophy and science fiction. And I would back then, it was before Facebook you know, discussion forums were still really popular. And I would be on this guy's discussion forum and people would say stuff about the brain. It would be wrong. And so I would say, well, if you just read X, you would know it's this. And so finally, I think he got frustrated and he said, well, why don't you just record a book review 
for my show. And I did what is now episode two of my show uh, in at my uh, review of the book on intelligence by um, Jeff Hawkins. When I oh. recorded that, I got such a high and I realized, you know, Hey, I could do a show about this and I would never run out of material. And this is 2006. So it was really before the brain was as hot as it is now, but I was like, I, that was it. That's how I came wow. to this. Oh, wow. It's so <laughs> fascinating to know that. Yeah. yeah and and thank so you. every Thanks question, when I get sent lots of books, you know, and they don't all particularly interest me. And of course, over the years, I've gotten interested in much more technical books than when I started. I mean, if you went back and listened to the first couple of seasons, it's, you know, beginner kind of general knowledge kind of books. And now I tend to pick more technical books, although I try to alternate more technical with more general audience because I have such a diverse audience and I try to keep that in mind. Um, but I pick every book by, you know, does this book say something that I want other people to know? Because when I yeah. started, I was like, people aren't reading books anymore and there's all this great material and I want to share this stuff. And then I discovered interviewing was better. Um, people respond to that and then they actually do buy the books and I think sometimes they read them. Um, yeah, but yeah. But I pick the books by whether or not there's something, it doesn't have to be entirely new, but it needs to be something worth knowing. So for, for example, uh, Robert Burton, who inspired my book, Are You Sure? Um, his book is about, is also about certainty. I mean, he gave me permission to, I mean, he cited throughout my book because it was really his original idea. Um, this idea that, um, um, that certainty is basically generated at unconscious levels, which might sound weird, except that we now know that most of what our brain does is unconscious. So the fact that our certainty comes from an unconscious place is not surprising if you put it into context. And I apologize if I jumped ahead to a question you were going to ask me later. You know, it's so funny. It's so funny as you said it. So my next question was, out of all the interviews you've done with authors such as Anil, Dispenza, Eagleman, Edelman, why did you choose to, you know, publish the work around neurologist Dr. Robert Burton? So thank you. Well, it was partly right because, it. It, yeah, it's partly because it's a really important idea, but it was actually sort of a practical consideration, as these things often are. When I first, this is actually the second edition of this book. And the yes. first edition was published back in 2010. That was when Amazon had first started their um, Amazon KDP, where you can just directly publish into, into the Kindle store. And I had a friend who's another podcasting pioneer, um, um, Evo Terra, who he's kind of a serial entrepreneur and he was working on, uh, on creating a course to teach people how to make eBooks. I mean, this was back, in 2010. So ebooks weren't as common as they are now. And so I was a beta tester for his class, oh, but I didn't wow. actually okay. have time to write a new first from scratch thing. So I asked myself what, and at that point I had done about 50 episodes. So I asked myself what of what I've done so far is, do I think is the most important? And that's how I picked the topic. You've yeah. got to be kidding. 
You've got so how many words was that transcript? So this I'm having a geek moment for for a moment. So that interview probably was an hour or two, but how many words was that? You know, I honestly don't remember. The book is actually composed of um, three main parts. The first part is, um, you might say, almost my overview of the book, because back then what I would do is, because I was still putting out two episodes a month at the time I interviewed Dr. Burton. So I would do a description of a book and then I would have the author on to sort of fill in the blanks. So the first step, the first part of the book is sort of my overview of his. Oh book. yes. I the remember those part, days now. Yeah. The second part is the interview with him. The third part, which is only in the second edition is a follow-up interview with him for his book. Um, um, I can't remember the name of it. Practical guide to the. Oh, yes. 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 Do you want me to look yeah. it up? Or... <laughs> anyway, he wrote another book, a follow-up book. And so, and I had him on in episode 96 for that. And so that's the part I added uh, when I made the new edition. So, yeah. And, so yeah. the two interviews were probably an hour. I don't know how many words that is. I mean, the good news is that now publishers seem to think short is better. Right. So it's a, my book yes, is very yes, short, yes. which that would have been considered a bad thing 20 years ago, but is now considered a good thing. Yeah. Well, that was his, I saw where his complimentary lens on your book was that you took so much of his research and drilled it down to the essential aspects for the person who's busy, the person who needs to know this, but, you know, wouldn't have time to read all this academic work. So, Kudos to you. I mean, he seemed very complimentary. He gave you almost like, you know, the conceptual standing ovation. <laughs> yeah, I, I consider him to be a very important mentor and um, friend, even though I have never met him in person. I haven't met most of the people I've interviewed in person. So it's always a treat if I actually get to do that. Um, I recently, yeah. when I interviewed, uh, actually, I haven't posted this, but it will be posted by the time your episode airs. I interviewed Evan Thompson recently and it was the first time I've ever even seen him because now we're doing video interviews. You know, we used to use Skype and we didn't even see the people that we were. Yes. Yes. Um, oh, so wow. That, yeah. Um, but um, yeah. And he did a lot of, I mean, he was originally a fiction writer, but he was also a neurologist. So he came to it with a very, uh, unique perspective but i think that what he wrote is really important and i i just think in general what i do is just what you said i try to synthesize the ideas yes. for the busy yes. person but yet i can't figure out how to make those little snippets like that now are so popular um i know that i mean i could tell it to you but somehow i can't quite make the jump over into the social media style of doing it um so but you do, all you need, you know what, I'll, you know, even at my age, you know what I do? I find a local university communications department and they inevitably want to give their students practical experience. So they'll spend maybe 30 hours with you over a month or two and they'll do it for you. And they'll create these really savvy social media sort of clips that really help the podcast grow and, you know, and create a broader reach. And and I think, um, and often they don't even want to be paid. They just need, they want to be graded and, you know, you get a chance to contribute to their academic journey. So 
I'll share some ideas with you on um, an email of how I've been able to sort of partner with universities and yeah, they'll send you like I four need- pages for you to grade them. Yeah. I need to make that leap to the, um, because I'm sure that I'm not reaching listeners that I would reach if I did that. I, I know that, um, you know, it's kind of one of the hazards of having a large audience and you're going, well, my audience is big enough. I, you know, I, yeah, yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not hungry, but that's the problem is I'm not hungry enough. And well, I put a lot of work into the episodes and I'm, I'm old fashioned enough to think, well, okay, I've done all this work and I don't really want to do the promotion and other people are really great at the promotion. And as yeah, you're podcasters, like the opposite. We're, we're expected to do yeah. both, but I've, I'm, not so good at that <laughs> yeah you're the opposite you're like you've got the like the real meat you've got the quality stuff and you just put it out and it's grown organically and then you've got the other people who not really say it much but they're great at social media <laughs> yeah so, yeah yeah awesome well you know when i was thinking about this conversation uh i you know there was a million different directions that i wanted to take it but i'm happy that it's kind of you know a very natural conversation but I did want to dive back into the, the practical implications of certainty. If much of what we do and our decisions are outside of our conscious control, and what, what are we to make of this? Like, what implication does this have on personal relationships? Are you saying that I wasn't really conscious of who I chose as a partner or if I'm a political leader? or if I'm voting for a particular political party, or in our daily life, what are we to make of this on a daily basis? If we're not really sure. Okay, I'm going to take it sideways for a minute and think about magic, okay? Do you like magic? Okay. Do you like yeah, magic? Yeah, sure. It's always entertaining. Okay, okay. so... Um, I've interviewed, um, some people who study, you know, why magic works. Um, and it works on the same principles. It takes advantage of the fact that our brain jumps to some conclusions. And so they, you, sleight of hand basically is based on, you know, getting you to look in one direction while they do something and you don't see it. Right. Okay. Um, It's, it really, it's actually a fascinating area of neuroscience now because it tells us so much about how our brain works. Um, some of the best um, magicians can actually do something in plain sight that nobody sees. Yes. Because yes, they're, yes, yes. you know, like, like the famous gorilla experiment, which is a little bit off the topic, but anyway, um, it is the way our brain works. Um, First of all, we need for our brain to be doing most of the things it does unconsciously because the, the focus of attention, um, the, the, our ability to really focus is so limited. It's the rate limiting step, if you will. So if we didn't have so much stuff going on unconsciously, we wouldn't be able to even have a conversation because we would be like trying to figure out how to move our lips to talk, right? So don't look at it as a design flaw. That's my first comment is the fact that most of what our brain does is unconscious is mostly good. It's mostly good. It allows us to do really complex things with ease, but it means that um, we just have to pay attention in a way. It's the flip side of 
of mindfulness. You know how the mindfulness people are always talking about how you need to, you know, really be in the moment and pay attention to the moment. Um, uh, that is the other side of it because that's what's happening on that little teeny conscious place. I mean, one reason why if you meditate, have you ever meditated? Yes. Yeah. The thoughts just seem to come from nowhere, right? They just pop in and they pop out and they pop in, they pop out. And that's because that conscious place is such a small percentage, right? And so there's not much room there. So something pops in, it pops out. If, if a bad thought comes, if you're a good meditator, you know, no matter how horrible I find, feel this in this moment, I know that it will pass if I allow it to, instead of following it down some negative rabbit hole. So in a practical standpoint, to get back to your question, so we're dealing with, um, say, our spouse. You may or may not have had love at first sight. I mean, most people don't, but some people do. But even if you didn't, you probably were attracted. I mean, I think about my husband of, um, I was married 38 years when my husband died. Um, I don't really remember being particularly attracted to him at the, I remember meeting him and I don't remember being attracted to him at that point. But as I got to know him, you know, I, um, I was, and I remember the day I realized I was in love because he made these obnoxious snorting sounds and he was, I was in university and he, I could hear him coming down the hall and I thought, and I was so excited to see him. And I was like, and I don't even care about that annoying, obnoxious sound. I, I must be in love. Wow. <laughs> you know, if you can put wow. up with your, with your partner's <laughs> worst trait, there's, there's information there, right? That um, is funny. Yeah. And I guess that's a little off the subject, but that's important though, because when you live with somebody for years and years, they're going to have stuff they did that annoys you. And if you aren't able to, you know, that could be really bad if you, couldn't honestly say, well, that doesn't bother me. But to get back to the magic and the the magician people that I've taught to is when you are faced with your instinct or first response or gut reaction, the question is, is this a moment in which I need to act according to this gut reaction? Or is it a moment in which I need to examine this gut reaction and ask myself, you know, does this make any sense? My point is that even though this affects our day-to-day living, it doesn't have to be a negative. We could use it if we just stop and think, you know, if you just make it a point of when you're doing stuff, look at yourself and say, hey, I just did that without even realizing it. Like when you drive home from work and you're listening to your audiobook and you didn't remember anything about the drive, right? Yeah. Um, yep. or you missed your exit. I've done that, but, but anyway, um, <laughs> you know, we do a lot of things on autopilot. Autopilot is not all bad, but we do need to look for opportunities to examine our autopilot. And like I said, I just say, ask yourself in this moment, is it a gut reaction? I must do what my gut says moment, or is it a moment when I could stop and think? And we can even use our unconscious to our advantage. I am a big fan of the sleep on it principle, you know? Yes, yes, yes. In fact, I did that just today. I'm getting ready to 
move uh, to New Zealand and I'm trying to figure out what to do with my stuff. Okay. And my sister okay. is visiting me and we had this conversation last night about stuff. And I woke up this morning with a new idea about exactly what to do with my stuff. Stuff is really kind of a burden, right? Um, but mm. it's just an example. So you, whenever I really am a big fan that if you have a big decision to make, you should say, Hey, even if you're sure you want to do the thing, when somebody asks you say, you know, I really need to give this some thought. Let me get back to you tomorrow. Because if you sleep on it, you may at the very least tomorrow, both sides will come into your head. Right. Whereas yeah. um, let's say you got offered a job by somebody who is somebody you really admire and out of the blue, they offer you a job and your, your reflex is going to be say yes. Right. Because it just is right. But you haven't thought through the consequences of whether this is a job that would be right for you. But if you sleep on it, then, you know, you're, your unconscious is really going to be doing the heavy lifting of weighing the pros and cons. You wake up in the morning and you kind of go, Oh, you know, there's that thing I didn't think of. Like, you know, he, he wants me to do X and that really is not right for me. Okay. Um, does that help at all? I, I feel like I didn't really. Answer yeah. Yeah. No, you, no, you, you have. And I think, I think, what you've inspired me to think about is a new framing, such as maybe the magic effect. So the way I see this is maybe we can develop separate categories. Like what we know for sure is, you know, I'm sure that right now my name is Timothy and I'm interviewing a woman who spent 20 years as an emergency position. But what I'm not sure is, is there a path for us to continue a conversation in the future? And maybe what you're saying is that when I explore any of these sort of magical kind of mystical sides of decision making, things that are not so concrete, not so, you know, system one type thinking, maybe I sleep on it. Maybe I go, I shouldn't be so susceptible to the magic. And I love the fact that I brought up the research around magic and I'm going to take that forward because I really do think that's important is going, yeah, there are the concrete sides of life. And then there's the sides of life where there is a bit of magic and I shouldn't rush when I'm being exposed to the magic and you can sleep on it. You can relax. Yeah. And, and Timothy, I'd like to say one other thing about that. You know, some old fashioned ideas have merit, like, you know, the famous autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. He always talked about making a list with your pros and your cons. But the problem is you get that list and then you're still stuck, right? Because you can't, you can't put a value on a lot of things. I mean, one of the problems in our culture today is that we are um, obsessed with measuring things. This is very true in medicine. We measure what we can measure. We don't necessarily measure what's important. Most of the stuff that's important can't be measured. So mm. let's say I made my, my pros and cons list, which I think is actually a wise choice. You're giving your unconscious material to work with. So I made my pros and cons choice uh, list. Now I'm going to go to bed and sleep on it. 
when I wake up in the morning, what my brain has done is it has processed that list along with everything else of my past experience. Then I might wake up certain that the thing I want to do is a certain thing, which is kind of what I did this morning about a decision I made about which stuff I was going to keep and not. I wake up with this feeling of certainty about it. I realize it's not scientific, but I have put more information in there so that I can come up with a gestalt answer. I mean, it really, it is true that our brain has the ability to do better this way than if we just make a list of pros and cons and say, well, you have to do this because there's more pros than cons. You know, people end, up people end up miserable when they make decisions that way. So you really want to integrate both your intuition side and your, um, you know, more objective side. And really, I mean, what is intuition? Intuition is when um, you get a, a, some information that feels like it came out of nowhere, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It came from the parts of your brain you can't get to. The problem is yeah. it may or may not be right, right? Something slithering, maybe a snake, maybe it's not. If it might be a snake, then it's wise to just act, you know? But if you're in a situation wow. like I'm looking at television and it's not going to jump out at me, I've got time to, you know, look at it further and figure out, well, no, it's really a stick. Okay. Um, so th- Think of the two systems. I don't even really, I, I know about the system one and system two nomenclature, and I think it's useful up to a point, but I don't think we should be wed to it as if those are concrete existing categories, because I don't think yes. that's what the brain really does. The brain is more of an integrated thing. So the slow and fast thinking, true, but it all goes together. It's like saying, oh, that's your left brain or though, oh, that's your right brain. As Brenda Milner said, no, both sides of your brain are always involved. Working um, together. Yes. You, yes. You know, these, these ideas that are just oversimplified can lead people astray. Um, so the point of the point of the sleep on it is you're giving your brain, which includes a lot of unconscious processes, a chance to do its thing and take a, you know, all the wisdom that you've built up over the years can bubble to the surface. Um, yeah, that's really powerful. I mean, I like the idea that it's not so simple. It's not just system one or system two, a left or right brain. It is fundamentally that when you slow down, you give yourself more access to the whole brain, to the, all of your experience, all of your sensory input, all the things you may have ignored. And then that integration process happens as you sleep or as you take more time or as you go for a walk or as you go and take a dip in the pool or a long bath or you just slow down Mm -hmm. and realize that this decision is really important. Some decisions are not so important, but some decisions are very important. And the rush of the emotion probably shouldn't be what you decide on. It should be decided on much deeper things. You know, I want to take a step back as we wrap up this conversation and ask you some fun stuff. Like, do you have a favorite conversation out of all these years that you have been interviewing guests? Um, 
It's why it's episode 33 about exercise. And unfortunately, the sound quality of that episode is horrible. Uh, let's see. It was re-released as an encore. I think you can get to it as episode 110 is free. Um, it's with John okay. Rady, who wrote the book um, Spark about um, how okay. exercise helps your brain. Um, oh, wow. You know, and, Number and unfortunately, yeah, I was going through a experimental period where I had um, – a preamp, just anyway, I messed up the sound. I won't, I would tell you exactly <laughs> what I did wrong, but I'm sure your listeners don't care. But all the sentences are clipped off due to a technical mistake on my part. Um, but it's still my favorite episode. Um, oh, wow. Interesting. Just because Interesting. I, I, I think it was just a certain, you know, vibe with, with Dr. Rady. Um, but I've had yeah. a lot of great Sometimes episodes. that happens, right? And, and, you know, yeah. I probably have decided that that's my favorite episode and haven't made room in my head for anything since then to be my favorite episode. Um, <laughs> uh, Is there someone you want to interview that you just can't align your diaries or get? Well, the, I used to, you know? I used to want to air, interview Eric Kendall and, you know, that just never could work out. It took me 10 years to get an interview with Antonio Damasio. Because even though he would say, yes, we could never jibe. And I figured out, and I'll tell you this secret, the best time to interview an author is right when their book is released. The ones that are hard to get usually have about a month window when they will do it. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Oh, that so, is helpful. That's very yeah. insightful. Um, and fortunately, I get a lot of books before they're published which allows me to know what the timing is going to be because they always come with yes. to be published in march or whatever uh, and so that that will but over the years i've decided i care less about interviewing famous people i real i'm putting famous in quotes because they're only famous to me as uh, they're in within neuroscience most people have no idea who they are um i've decided i don't care so much about that as i care about getting ideas out there that matter. So I actually rather interview someone that no one's ever heard of who has a really important, exciting idea. So I don't, yeah. by the time I interviewed Damasio, I didn't really care so much about interviewing Damasio, but I had all these listeners who were constantly saying, please interview Damasio, please. So yes, 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 yes. And I, I mean, I've had yeah, some well, requests for people to be interviewed that I don't want to interview, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Um, I mean, you can hear people okay. on the radio and know that they're going to be a bad interview, you know, like if they have yeah, a really exactly. boring, dull, monotone voice, um, that sort of thing. But as a whole, scientists are great to interview because they, they, they have passion for what they're doing. And That's I like true. being able to share that passion because when the listeners hear, Hey, this guy, he's, you know, he's into the brain just like somebody else might be into their video game. It's the same thing, but they, they can't get that unless they hear the person talking about their work as a person who's passionate. Uh, so to me, yeah. that's the best thing about interviewing scientists and they're not interviewed very often. So that's and true. The, yeah. Well, the challenge is that most people don't know how to interview them. Well, first of all, most people don't read before they interview. That's their first mistake. So then they ask True. stupid questions and it's just all downhill from there. But it, it, even if I don't totally understand the person's work, I can figure out what the big ideas are. And since that's my focus, that's what I focus on. Do you have anybody on your bucket list that has a big idea that you're still trying to nail down? 
Mm, not that pops into my head right now, but I will give you a, a, a glimpse of the future. Um, I'm going okay. to do a episode about plant intelligence. Oh, wow. That's going to be exciting. Plants don't actually, you know, they don't have brains. Yeah. Don't so, they have some sort of nervous system? Some well, sort they of- don't have nervous system at all, but they, but they actually are intelligent. Yeah. They so have an intelligence. Gonna, okay. That's going to be interesting. I'm interviewing somebody who also thinks they're conscious and I'm not sure that I buy the conscious half, but I do buy the intelligence. And I think it's, that's going to be an interesting conversation. Probably going to be in March. So. Um, okay. Well, we'll be looking out for it. Dr. Ginger Campbell, thank you so much for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show and all the best with your move to New Zealand. I'm sure you'll still be putting out incredible work from that part of the world as well. Thank you. <laughs>